this is a pretty weighty book with a weighty message and a pretty lengthy message so hope you all have your seatbelts on all right first chapter of Jonah we're going to read the first couple of verses if any of you have noticed my preaching style I like to read the entire passage, but because of how long it is, we're just going to read, unpack, read, unpack, read, unpack. Is that all right? John chapter 1, starting at the first couple of verses, says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So we have just read from Jonah chapter 1, and as you could probably tell, this book covers the ministry of Jonah. It's a book that consists of four chapters, 48 verses, that acknowledge many of our aspects of life. But of all 48 verses, the focus of this entire book is found in the first verse. It's found in the first verse in just five key words. The word of the Lord. That's what it says in verse 1. It starts by saying, now the word of the Lord. This statement, the word of the Lord, it can refer to God's written word. But in this passage, it also refers to God's will. It refers to God's desires. It refers to God's command. It refers to God's expectations. And so the first thing God wants us to know and the first thing God wants us to focus on in this book is his word and his will. That's the focus of this entire book. God's word and his will. The word of the Lord is the first line in this entire book. Notice the text. There's nothing in this book written before this statement. There's nothing that comes before God's word. There's nothing in this book that exists before the word of the Lord because I believe God is reminding us in this book that the word, that his word and his will existed before the foundations of the world. God's word and his will come first. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah Jonah was a prophet, a well-known preacher who stood before the king of Israel and is believed to have been respected by the king of Israel. But as well-known as Jonah was, and as well-known as his, or as impactful as his ministry may have been, Jonah was still a human being. A human being, and like every human on the planet, Jonah had desires. Jonah had desires of how his ministry should function, how his life should turn out. And so when we see his name in scripture, we see a man with human desires like everyone else. But despite his desires, notice how God's word still comes first. Now the word of the Lord came to John. This verse sums up the entire book. And this book reveals God's desire for his word and his will to be put above our own. In verse 1, the word of the Lord comes first. Then you see Jonah's name which means the word of the Lord comes before our desires. But when we also look at this book, it also reveals how often we struggle to put God's desires first. 
And that's what we're going to see in this book, a struggle, a fight to pursue God's will by putting our desires on the back burner. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Again, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their wickedness or their evil has come up before me. And before we dive into our points, I just want to recognize one thing. We all have an assignment. We all have an assignment. Jonah was a preacher called with an assignment. God commands Jonah to preach to the Ninevite nation, a nation that had become one of the most influential cities in Assyria. During the time of Jonah, the Assyrian Empire was on the rise. It was becoming one of the most powerful nations in the world at that time. And so Nineveh was not only a city in Assyria, but it was the capital of Assyria, the most powerful and cruelest and most idolatrous empire in the world at that time. It was a large city where chaos ran rampant throughout the streets, a city where people murdered daily and trafficking was a norm. It was a city where people robbed and they stole even if they had to beat someone down or kill them over it. It was a city where people could live whatever lifestyle they pleased. It was a hostile nation, a prideful nation who boasted in their accomplishments and the size of their city. Ninevites walked with their head up high and their shoulders back, proud of who they were as they looked down on those who were not of them and even killed those who were not of them. And God commands Jonah to preach his word to them. You know, we too, we live in a dark world. We too, we live in a fallen world. But just as the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, the word of the Lord has come to us, the sons and daughters of God through Christ Jesus, commanding and commissioning us to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. We are called to declare the word of the Lord to those of this world. You know, preaching is not limited to standing behind the podium on a Sunday morning. But when you take the time to unpack the gospel with someone over a meal, we're practicing a form of preaching. When we share the gospel and we pray with our children, we're practicing a form of preaching. Preaching is not limited to what is said behind the pulpit on a Sunday morning, but some of our best sermons are sermons of action. Some of the best lessons that we teach are taught through action. And so when we refuse to join in malicious gossip, we're preaching. When we refuse to, when we refuse to engage in revengeful activity and we walk away from the opportunity to get revenge towards someone who hurt us, we're preaching. When we resist temptation to boast in our accomplishments, but we glorify God for what he has done in and through us, we're preaching. We're called to preach to a world full of broken and hurting people, people looking to worldly pleasures for relief. We're called to preach that there is a better way. You know, this is a country filled with people with shattered hearts. They're looking to materialistic things for healing, but we're called to preach a better way. You know, that's why we sin often, because we're looking for attributes that only God possesses in the wrong places. That's why we find ourselves in and out of toxic relationships, because we're looking for love in the wrong 
places. That's why we find people getting involved in the dangerous lifestyles of the streets because they're looking for family and friendship in the wrong places. Some people overeat and they do drugs and they become alcoholics because they're looking for relief from the pressures of life in the wrong places. We're called to preach. We're not called to condemn, but we're called to preach a better way. I believe Nineveh was a city filled with people searching for peace, searching for relief, searching for hope, searching for love, searching in all the wrong places. And that's why they began to grow wicked, wicked every day. God seeing their wickedness tells Jonah to preach his word, but Jonah refuses. He refuses, which brings me to the first point, a prideful heart avoids mercy. A prideful heart avoids mercy. Jonah 1, the first few verses again. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their wickedness or their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So God calls and he commands Jonah to preach to a nation of sinners, but Jonah refuses. And you know, we often hear this story about Jonah and we, we hear this and we get angry with Jonah for refusing to go there. We, you know, we hear this point of the story and we wonder how Jonah could be so arrogant not to declare the word of the Lord to the lost. How can Jonah be so cruel? And I, I gave a small background of where Jonah's going, but I just want to take it a step further because sometimes when you give a background, it gives us a clear understanding of people's actions. That's why we should never assume. Always want to get a background why people do things. So during the time of Jonah, the Assyrians, again, were rising in power, but they rose in power by conquering nations. It wasn't just by influence. They took it by force. So by this time, the Assyrians had taken over and they had conquered several of Israel's surrounding nations. So not only did they conquer them, but they were cruel to those that they captured. You know, most people, when they capture you, they, they, they cuff your hands. But the Assyrians were nuts. They didn't just cuff your hands, but they put chains in your nose and around your neck, and they dragged you that way. They made slaves out of those that they captured. They, they split up families, and anyone who resisted was killed on the spot. In fact, we find out several decades, decades after this passage of Jonah, the Assyrians actually attacked Judah, an Israelite nation. They attack, they conquer, and they make many of those Israelites their slaves. So this means, this is after the lifetime of Jonah when they do that. So this means during Jonah's lifetime, the Assyrians had their eye on them. The Assyrians had their eye on them. So I can imagine throughout Jonah's life hearing the threats from the Assyrian Empire. I can imagine how often Jonah may have spotted Assyrian spies walking throughout his neighborhood. I can imagine how often the Assyrians mocked their lifestyle. The Assyrians had their eye on Jonah's people, and Jonah's people knew that at any day, any day could be their last day of freedom. And so I believe they walked around with daily anxiety, daily fear, 
I can imagine that many of Jonah's people were angry because they just wished they could be left alone. This was a cruel nation that terrorized other nations. So the thought of the Assyrians being wiped from the face of the earth may have been an answer prayer for some of the Israelites. But God tells Jonah, go and share my word with them. So what we're seeing is God is commanding Jonah to love his enemies. And so when Jonah refuses, he refuses out of anger. He refuses out of hurt. He refuses out of revenge for what may have been done to him. Now, after hearing that background, now we're mad at the Assyrians and we saw it with Jonah. So how could you say that Jonah's prideful now? Because now I'm with Jonah. I wouldn't go either. God, do what you got to do with them. But, but, but now, now after hearing that, now we're trying to figure out, okay, how is Jonah prideful? We would think that he has the right to refuse to love his enemies. Jonah's refusal to preach to his enemies, it was still an act of pride. Because sometimes when we're hurt, you know, we focus on the flaws of those who hurt us and not our own. Sometimes when we're angry, we focus on how evil that person is and what they need to work on. We acknowledge that we have flaws, we do, but we focus more on the flaws of our enemy. So Jonah was an angry man who focused completely on Nineveh's flaws without seeing his own. He had so much hope that God would wipe out this city, that God would take care of his enemies in a harmful way, that he overlooked his need of mercy every day. Another reason why Jonah refused, simple, Nineveh just wasn't his preference. Nineveh just wasn't his preference. You look back, people believe Jonah was a prophet, but he prophesied to his people. And so what we're seeing is God is calling him out of his comfort zone to go to an unfamiliar place. How often has God told you to do something that didn't fit your preference? How often has God laid it on your heart to serve in a ministry where you're actually good at, but it's just not your preference? How often has God put it on your heart to pray for someone that does not fit your preference or pour into someone or teach someone that's not your preference? You know, I've had to go out to lunch with people that wasn't my preference. And the worst thing is they pick the place that's not my preference. So now I'm sitting at the table with someone that's not my preference and with food that's not typically my preference. But at the end of the day, have any of you guys been in that situation? And so this is what Jonah is told to do. He's told to preach in a place that's not his preference, but pride won't let him. Pride won't let him, so he runs. So now Jonah being a prophet, of course, he, the Bible says that he tried to run from the presence of the Lord. Jonah was a prophet, so he knew he couldn't outrun God's presence. But he did think that he could outrun God's expectation. He did think he could hide from that. And so, in fact, the Bible says that he made his way to Tarshish, which is on the total opposite side of Nineveh. So let me tell you how committed Jonah was to this mission of running away. Jonah is about 500 miles east of where Jonah lived, right? Going by land. Tarshish is 2,500 miles west going by sea. So that means Jonah would rather be 2,500 miles outside of God's will than just 500 miles in it. 
What does that tell us? Now, mind you, Jonah is a believer. What does that tell us about believers? Believers, in a nutshell, still sin. Believers, I know that shocks some of you. Believers still make mistakes. They still fall short. They still mess up. You know, because a lot of times people hear Christians preach righteousness and then they think that we think we're perfect. But Christians are flawed just like everybody else. Christians are flawed just like everybody else. But the difference is between a Christian and everyone else is that Christians recognize they're wrong and they seek to do better. They ask God for forgiveness. Real Christians don't justify their sin. And that's what we're going to see later on in the life of Jonah. But Jonah was a preacher who sinned against God. He was a preacher who made a mistake. He was a preacher who sinned. Which brings me to my next point. Sin is always followed by consequences. When sin knocks at your door, it does not come alone. A consequence is always following. Jonah tries to outrun God's will. Notice verse 3. Remember the point. Sin is always followed by a consequence. Verse 3, it says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is walking in rebellion. He's walking in rebellion against God. He refuses to walk in obedience. He's living life. He's trying to live life on his own terms. But notice the direction that he's headed. Notice the direction. Every move he makes, walking in disobedience, leads in only one direction. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship. There's only one direction you can go when you're walking in disobedience, and it's not up. Well, well, well wait a second. How, how can you say that if there are people that live in disobedience and they still experience blessing? How can you say that? And there's still people who walk in disobedience and they're wealthy and prosperous. What they're experiencing, and we actually talked about this in our leadership class the other day, what they're experiencing is something called common grace. Common grace is something, is a grace that God bestows not only on believers, but even unbelievers. So that means there's a difference between common grace and saving grace. They're two different things. So when a believer and an unbeliever wakes up in the morning, they live, move, and they have their being. What they are experiencing is common grace. When a believer or an unbeliever is successful with their name in life because of their talents, they're experiencing common grace. When a believer or an unbeliever raises their children to be respectful, they're experiencing common grace. Grace. So common grace is for both the unbeliever and the believer. And so though it seems as if they're off the hook, God never lets sin go unpunished. So the only direction that we can go when we walk in disobedience is down. It seems as if Jonah is off the hook. I believe that him walking in those directions was a foreshadow and a warning for what was to come if he continued walking in disobedience. You know, God does warn us before he punishes. Jonah walks in one direction and it's down, but it seems as if he's off the hook. It seems as if he gets away. He goes down into the ship and they're off to Tarshish. It seems as if he took control 
of his life, living life on his own terms. But verses 4 and 5, it says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. These verses are extremely critical. Verses 4 and 5, these are extremely critical verses because these verses tell us how our sin affects other people. Whether we know it or not, our sin affects other people. The Bible says that there was a mighty tempest on the sea. A tempest is a violent, aggressive storm. A storm that was so bad that the ship could have been broken apart at any moment. And the merchants were afraid. You know, the merchants were just doing their job. They were just, they were just doing their job, just trying to get from one place to the other. And they face a storm. Not because of anything they did, but because of the sins of someone else. They're frightened as they stare death in the face. And guess where Jonah is? Downstairs sleeping. The men throwing their livelihood into the sea, their cargo to lighten the load. They have to throw their cargo off the ship. And most of the time, this cargo consisted of gold. It was silver. It was ivory. It was other precious gifts and items. And so that means that Jonah not only affected the merchants, but he affected those who were looking to receive that stuff. The merchants, may have, may, they could lose their jobs if they show up without the cargo. They could lose their lives if they show up without the cargo. And guess where Jonah is? Downstairs sleep. You know, because when you're asleep, you're unaware. When you're asleep, you're not focused on your surroundings. When you're asleep, you're not focused on what everybody else is going through. You're only focused on yourself and your desires. So Jonah was so comfortable in his sin that he fell asleep. Not only does he fall asleep, but the Bible says he fell fast asleep. That can mean two things. That means he got comfortable enough to fall asleep with ease, which means as soon as he laid down, he was knocked out. And it also means that he got comfortable enough to fall into a deep sleep. Jonah reached a point in his life where he is completely unaware of the damage that he's causing other people. There's a deadly, violent storm taking place in Jonah's sleep. He sleep to the point where verse 6 says the captain had to go down there and wake him up. The captain had to go down there and wake him up. You know, it's good to know. It's good to know that when a backslider goes away or believer backslides and they allow their flesh to find rest in sin God loves us so much that he'll do whatever it takes to wake us up the merchant woke him up you know the merchant was an idol worshiper according to verse 5 they worshiped other gods they were pagan but God used a pagan not a prophet not an evangelist God used a pagan to wake Jonah up. So when we as believers are in a backslidden state, God can use anyone, saved or unsaved, righteous or unrighteous, to get us back on track, even if it rocks our world. Verses 7, and we're going to read on down from there. 
And then they said to him, Jonah's awake now, he's upstairs. And they said to one another, come let us cast lots that we may know whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. The men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done to us? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. They made vows. So what we're seeing what we're seeing is how God can use a storm to reveal himself to unbelievers. God can use chaos to open the eyes of unbelievers so that they may know he is God. There's four chapters in the book of Jonah, and the merchants are never mentioned after this. But these last three verses that they're mentioned in verse 14 through 16 tell us that they not only pray to the Lord, but at the end of the storm, they made sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. You know what that means? That means they surrendered their lives to God. You know, we often think that this storm that Jonah was in was sent simply to teach him a lesson. And so because of that view, we, we, we wonder, you know, why would God include all of them? You know, it seems as if God could have found a better way to punish Jonah and just leave the sailors alone instead of including them in this but I want to remind you Jonah was surrounded by pagans he was, he was surrounded by pagan idol worshipers who would have died and gone to hell but once the storm ceased not only did they worship the Lord but they surrendered their lives to God by making vows so that means God can use one thing for so many reasons. That's why he's holy and he's set apart. God uses one storm to punish a believer and save unbelievers at the same time. So that storm wasn't just for Jonah. That storm was for everyone on the ship. See, sometimes we wonder how a mighty God can allow his children to backslide and go so far left. Sometimes we wonder how God is so loving and can allow unbelievers to be successful while his children may struggle to make ends meet. 
we wonder how an all-powerful God handles the situations that he does. But can I just let you know something? Sometimes we don't know who that storm is for. Sometimes we don't know why we face the storms that we face. We don't know who God is calling to himself. We don't know what backslider needs to wake up. You know, I've learned that God can do one thing for a million reasons and may possibly reveal three. God can use this storm to wake up an unbeliever or a believer and save an unbeliever. That's what he does in this text. He uses the storm to punish a believer and save unbelievers. So, so Jonah's thrown off the sea. He's thrown off the boat into the sea and the storm immediately ceases. Seems to be the end for Jonah. He's messed up. I mean, it's bad now. He's thrown off into the sea, but this is my closing point because it seems to be the end for him, but my closing point is God is merciful. God is merciful. I'm just, uh, I want to read the last two verses, 15 and 17, but before I do, I'm going to let you know I'm reading this in the New King James Version because there's a word that sticks out that I want to focus on that the New King James Version uses. It says in verse 15 and 17, so just if you want to read that, it's fine, but I'm reading another version. Verse 15, it says, so they picked up Jonah, and it might actually be the same overall, but it says, so they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered up sacrifices to the Lord and took vows. Verse 17, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So again, Jonah rebelled against God in a way that put people's lives in jeopardy. He made mistakes that put people's lives, their livelihood, their jobs in jeopardy. It's, 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 it's in moments like this, because now he's cast away. It's in moments like this that Jonah could be seen as a failure. It's in moments like this where people would wash their hands of Jonah. They would write him off. People would cut him off. Jonah would be seen as a rebel. He'd be seen as a troublemaker, a preacher who most people would lose respect for. Jonah messed up. He messed up. He's fallen. And he's been thrown out the ship. He's been kicked out of fellowship. He's been cut off. And now he's sinking. At this point, Jonah just seems too far gone. He just seems too far gone. He's sinking. He made a mistake that has led to death. He's sinking deeper and he's sinking deeper. And you know, the deeper he sinks, the darker it gets. So now he's going further and further in darkness. He's sinking in deeper waters and darker waters. You know, when you're underwater, your view of things are different. Your view of life is different. Jonah's view of everything is now changing. His vision is now distorted. His hearing is unclear. He can't move the way he would on land. And even if he opens his mouth, it causes further damage. So now he's silent. He's called, somebody told him to shut up. Stop talking. You don't got nothing else to say. Because anything else you say is going to cause further damage. He's sinking to the bottom of the sea, according to Jonah 2 and 5, and we're going to talk about that next week. But he hit rock bottom. 
according to Jonah 2.5, he hits the bottom. Some of you may have messed up so bad to the point where you feel like you have reached and hit rock bottom. You've lost everything and you've hit rock bottom. And to top it all off, Jonah's alone. Jonah's alone. There's no one to help him. There's no one to save him. There's nothing for him to stand on or lean on. There's nothing for him to grab. All because he messed up. All because he failed. And it seems as if God is silent. It seems as if God is distant. You ever found yourself falling so deep in sin that it seemed as if God's arm and his hand was too short to pull you out? You ever messed up so bad that it seems as if God couldn't love you or wouldn't want anything to do with you? Seems as if God is just distant. Jonah is in a hopeless place where he can't escape, but I'm touched by the closing verse, verse 17. I'm, I'm touched by this. It says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. You know, when I read this verse, I wished I could have done a backflip. I wish I could, but I would be in the hospital, and this might be a virtual message. <laughs> I wish I could. I, I wish I could have taken this verse, and I wanted to read it to every neighbor in my block because you know we hear this verse and we're like how in the world could someone get excited about Jonah being in a fish it seems like matters have gotten worse it seems like Jonah's done <laughs> but what excites me knowing this is where Jonah was located Jonah rebelled against God right he ran down to Joppa and he goes on to a ship that's headed to Tarshish in between Joppa and Tarshish is the Mediterranean Sea right the Mediterranean Sea at that time had several species of sharks living in the water. Sharks that will rip you apart and move on, waiting for someone to fall so they could finish them off. You know, it's sad to know. It's, it's really, really sad to know that there are some people that go to church waiting for certain people, waiting for certain preachers, waiting for certain leaders to fall short so they can finish them off. They can say, you know, see, I told you something was wrong with him. There are people that sit at the edge of their seat waiting for their peers to fall so they can say, I always knew something was wrong with them. There are famous so-called Christian blogs and YouTube channels whose popularity is built on exposing other Christians' flaws. There are people who made careers out of spying on other people to expose their wickedness to the world and they call themselves Christians that's the mindset of a shark that's the mindset of a shark the crazy thing about sharks they don't even eat people like that they really don't even eat people they just like to tear apart vulnerable and wounded people and leave them alone to die one of the worst encounters a person could have is a shark disguised as a Christian one of the worst encounters you could have is a Christian with shark-like tendencies. Jonah was a preacher who fell short. He was a Hebrew. He belonged to a local assembly who worshiped the Lord daily. So this means that Jonah was a church member. He was a church leader who messed up. He fell into a place where he could not come back from, so it seems. But he also fell into a place where he could be torn apart and left for dead. But this is why I love verse 14 or 17. 
It says, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow him up. So this seems like a punishment, and part of it is, but what we're seeing is a rescue. What we're seeing is a rescue. You know, there are people who messed up and ended up in jail. But you know, that time away, it may have been your great fish from the death of the streets. You know, there are some people who messed up and they lost their job, but you know, that loss of the job may have been your great fish that kept you from losing your family. You know, there are some people who messed up and they lost their money, but sometimes that loss of money may have been your great fish that kept you from pursuing drug addiction. Every sin is followed by a consequence, but thank God that he knows how to use a consequence to protect his children. Another reason, another reason why I wanted to do a backflip when I read this verse is because of that word prepare. And I know in the ESV it says appointed, but in the King James it says prepared, and that's a very key word I want to focus on because in the English uh, definition of that is broken up into two pre-par pre-par so pre is before that's why you see a preview preview is beforehand pre is before par is a standard so when someone or something is being prepared they're being worked on beforehand so they can eventually come up to par it makes sense so the fish wasn't just created on the spot it just didn't appear. This fish was born. This fish was born. This fish had to grow and it had to develop to the point where it could swallow a grown man whole and hold him for days. You know, it takes usually up to about five to 10 years for a fish to grow that size. For some, it may take longer. So this means that while Jonah was going about his business, hating his enemies, God was developing his escape from death. So that, that's the English, but but the but the but the Hebrew word which is in your which is in the ESV, the word appointment. This word it goes is it's a word that talk that brings to it, it means to appoint and to establish. So this goes past the fish's development. It goes past Jonah's birth, it goes past the existence of Nineveh and Israel. This goes past creation. This word appoint tells us that before anything was formed. God already established and appointed the fish to swallow Jonah. And so that means if the fish was appointed to swallow Jonah before the world was formed, that means God knew that Jonah would mess up. You know, some of us, we, we think God is shocked when, when we mess up. You know, God, there is no sin that catches God off guard. There is no sin that shocks God. There is no sin that changes God's view of his children. God saw your flaws before you were born. He saw Jonah's flaws. He saw that Jonah would put people's lives at stake. He saw how much mess Jonah would make. And even knowing what Jonah would do, the Bible says the word of the Lord still came to Jonah. Going back to verse 1. Verse 1 is not the beginning where God just thought, I'm going to trust him and see what happens. God chose him knowing what he would do. And yet he still chose him. He saw how much he would mess up and he still called him to preach. The word of the Lord still came to Jonah. Jonah wrestled, he wrestled with pride thinking that somehow 
he deserved God's love and his mercy more than his enemies. But Jonah didn't understand that he was just as qualified to receive God's wrath as those of Nineveh. Sometimes we have a tendency to think that we deserve heaven because we're not as involved in sin as other people are. Sometimes we think that uh, we're more deserving of God's, some people are more deserving of God's wrath than we are because they may do something openly. Openly. Doesn't mean you don't do it, just no one knows. <laughs> but God is holy and he's righteous. He made us in his image. He made us in his likeness. But the word of the Lord came to mankind to, to follow and obey a rule and submit to God's perfect will. But, but we wanted to live life on our own terms. We wanted to do things our own way. So mankind rebelled against God. Our rebellion, it brought a violent spiritual storm to destroy this earth, a violent storm of sin. And sin separated us from God. It put us in the place to deserve nothing but his wrath. But instead of giving us his wrath, he gave us his son. Jesus, God the son, was sent from heaven. You know, heaven is a place where pain and sorrow is non-existent. It's a place where everyone and everything is perfect. So Jesus was sent to leave this perfect place of comfort to come to a dark, rebellious, hostile world. But unlike Jonah, Jesus came with no hesitation. Jesus came to this earth and he dwelt among us. He didn't just stop by, but he lived among us. And unlike Jonah, he lived a sinless and a perfect life in perfect obedience to the Father. You know, Jonah hated his enemies, but Jesus loved them. Jonah stayed away from people who didn't know God, but Jesus pursued them. Jonah stayed away, hoping that his enemies would perish eternal, eternally, but Jesus came so we might live eternally. God the Father sent his son Jesus to this earth. Jesus, the preacher, the prophet, the evangelist, the son of God, lived among us in this dark, sinful world, preaching love and repentance and forgiveness and submission and mercy he lived in this dark world among us being tempted at all points being tempted at all points tempted to retaliate but he forgave he was tempted to kick sinners while they were down but he restored he was tempted to boast in his deity but he humbled himself and he served completely sinless but we're sinful and because we're sinful, we're sinners who ran from God's will. We deserve God's wrath. But God sent a violent storm of sin. He sent a violent storm to punish us. And our, our boat, if I can be metaphorical, our boat of life was rocking back and forth. We were scared to die. We felt unfit to live. The violent storm was raging and the waves were rocking us back and forth. But thank God that Jesus was on this boat of life with us. Jesus did life with us. Jonah, he just told Jonah to go preach and you can leave. But Jesus stayed for a little while and did life in this boat of life with us. And unlike Jonah, Jesus was in the storm with us, but he was innocent because the storm was sent to punish us for our sin. But Jonah, Jonah was thrown off the ship as his punishment. But Jesus took our punishment upon himself by 
dying on the cross. He was thrown off the ship of life by dying on the cross for our sins. And like Jonah, Jesus sank in our sin. He, he sank in darkness, taking the wrath of the Father by dying on the cross. Jonah sank in the sea because of his sin. But before the foundations of the world, God prepared a fish, a great fish, to swallow him. You know, this fish had never swallowed a man before. This fish had never swallowed a man before. It was designed and developed to swallow Jonah. Jonah sank because of his sin. But unlike Jonah, Jesus sank in death, taking our sin upon himself on the cross. He died on the cross physically, but he spiritually sank in sin and death spiritually. But before the foundations of the world, God prepared a tomb, a great tomb that was designed specifically for Jesus. And this explains why in Matthew 12 and 40, Jesus says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. For three days, Jesus laid in the great tomb lifeless. For three days, he laid in darkness. For three days, he had been swallowed up by the grave. But early on the third day, the death and sin and the grave got in a gesture and couldn't keep Jesus down. And after three days of death, Jesus walked out of the grave with all power. Sin and death is defeated because Jesus is alive. Go ahead and clap on that one. That's, that's just good stuff. That's just good stuff. When our faith is in Christ, when our faith is in Christ, we, when we surrender our lives to Jesus as Lord, we're saved from the penalty of sin. And once this life is over, those in Christ are guaranteed to spend eternal life with Jesus Christ. And so those sin may have influence that no longer has dominion. Jesus is greater than Jonah. All of us, all of us, are like the Ninevites. I'm done, y'all can come on up. All of us are like the Ninevites. But only through Christ will we receive mercy from the Father. So I want to encourage you. I want to encourage each of you to lay your pride at the altar. Just as God showed us mercy, we must show mercy to someone else. So my question to you is, what, what are you holding on to? What are, you, what are you holding on that keeps you from forgiving? What are you holding on to that keeps you from showing mercy? What are you holding on to that keeps you from sharing the love of Christ, not just with your friends, but with your enemies? We must remember that we were once enemies of God before Christ, but just as Jesus loved us, we must love one another, not just our friends, but even our enemies. Let's pray. Father, we thank you because you're a good God. We thank you that you are holy and you're righteous. But Lord, you gave us a rule and we, we ran from it. We ran from it. We tried to rebel against you tried to escape your expectation and your will 
and it caused so much damage but yet you still loved us yet you still called us yet you still had a plan to redeem and restore us and we're grateful we thank you for the life of Jesus Christ the greatest prophet the greatest preacher the son of the living God we thank you for the greatest example of mercy and love and compassion, not just toward his friends, but even his enemies. We thank you that through him, we have eternal life. We thank you that through him, we have access to you. And so we pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that the same love Jesus had would be in us, that we would love those who wouldn't, are not necessarily our preference. We pray, Lord, for a heart of humility that if we see a need, not just in our home, but even in our church, in our community, it may not be our preference, but Lord, if you've called us and you've gifted us to work in that area, we pray, Lord, for a heart of humility that we would roll our sleeves up and put our hands to the plow. We thank you for everyone here. We pray, Lord, that they would leave encouraged, that they would leave changed with a heart and mind to grow in their faith and their walk with you give you praise. We give you thanks. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.